The church year is, we're at the beginning of things. We've been following a round of the church year, uh, the seasons, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, then the crucifixion and Easter and Pentecost when we had the gift of the Holy Spirit, and now the green season when we've been uh, going through a lot of the teachings and uh, ideas, the ministry of Jesus, his healings. Now we've come to the conclusion of that green season, and we're ready to start again, Advent. The Advent of the Christ, the preparation for the birth, which is also a preparation for another birth, for a rebirth. So the church here cycles around. And as many of you know, a lot of early cultures, the round of the seasons was their main way of telling time. Time went by a season uh, at a time. It was the determining fact in time. Everything recurred over and over. Events were linked to the seasons, and a lot of their ceremonies were linked to the seasons, harvest and winter, and uh, the uh, many ancient monuments seemed to be geared to seasonal events. But as a number of scholars have pointed out, with the gathering of the stories and events of the Jewish people, there developed a sense of what we now would call history. That is, the Jews began to see themselves on a direct line of events leading from the creation through various encounters and contracts with the creator and on to the eventual climax of salvation with the coming of their Messiah. As Christians, we've inherited that sense of progress and movement toward a goal, not of an eventual coming of the Messiah, of course, but of a route laid out for us by the coming and teachings of Jesus, who is for us the Messiah, the anointed one. So we're moving through history, and each of us is moving through our own lives, striving to prepare for our ends and especially for a new beginning. There may seem to be a strange discrepancy between the thrust of history toward salvation and a new life and the cycles and seasons of the church year, but I'll see if I can't bring these apparently opposing ideas in our faith tradition to reconciliation. Birth and rebirth are closely wound together in our lives and in our church year. In the past few Sundays, we've heard about the end of things, perhaps more than the advent of things. A reading from Mark's Gospel two weeks ago told of Jesus' warning that the temple would fall, that there would be wars and earthquakes, and that these would be just the birth pangs of what was to come. Then last week, you heard the passage from the Revelation to John about Christ's eventual return, the second coming. And this morning, the first Sunday of Advent, as we anticipate the birth of Jesus, Jeremiah predict a new, predicts a new branch of David will arrive to save Judah and save Jerusalem. And in today's gospel, Jesus himself predicts great events and great changes when only those who are righteous will be saved. And he promises his followers that they will know and understand the signs and will be ready when the Son of Man returns. So we're hearing predictions, apocalyptic pronouncements about the ends of things, even as in the church year we prepare for Advent, the beginning of things. The ideas of birth and death, of acceptance and rejection are closely linked in our scriptures. Especially notable, of course, are things like Herod's decision to have all the infant boys in the area of Bethlehem put to death so the newly born king would not survive the cha to challenge him, the great birth and then the horrible death. 
And of course, our great feast of Easter can't be celebrated until we've made our way again through the suffering and death on the cross of Jesus, the Messiah. And when we're baptized, we're admonished to die unto sin. And the ritual drowning in the baptismal waters was a significant part of, the, of early baptism, where people went down into the water and out a second set of steps and naked and into a new white garment. Those of us who were baptized by sprinkling or pouring actually miss out on some of that symbolism. But we don't miss out on the great promise we make or that is made for us, when, that we are letting go of our old being and emerging, whether entirely wet or not, uh, into a, as a new person. So in the church's teaching, in preparing for the birth, we're reminded that we are born into life, preparing for death, but also preparing for new and eternal life. The message from Jesus in today's passage from Luke's Gospel is a warning and at the same time a wonderful promise. It occurs in Luke just before the chapter in which Jesus and his disciples spend the Passover meal together and Jesus is betrayed and the Roman soldiers come to arrest him, take him to the trial that ends in his crucifixion. So on the brink of that last terrible and frightening chapter in Jesus's earthly ministry, he gives his followers the news that some incredible events will overtake them, but that the outcome is his return. The disciples can't know what is to come in the next couple of days, but Jesus prepares them for a time beyond with this revelation. The Greek word apocalypse means an uncovering or a revealing, really the same thing as revelation. It does not necessarily mean something terrible, something frightening, movie titles to the contrary. Uh, it's not about war. It's an uncovering by a prophet or a wise person of what is to come, often about what is to be the end of things. The fact that many of the biblical predictions seem frightening might hide us from the fact that the apocalyptic event we heard about in today's reading is not terrible. The poet T.S. Eliot uh, wrote in his last great poem, Four Quartets, in my beginning is my end. And again, in my end is my beginning. These two lines are the first and last of the section titled East Coker. East Coker is a village in Somerset that Eliot's ancestors left in the 17th century to emigrate to the New World. And it's in this, to this village that Eliot returned. He's interred in the village church, and on the memorial plaque commemorating him are written those two enclosing lines, in my beginning is my end, in my end is my beginning. So this round of the church year has its very strong reality in our own lives, but we should remember at the same time that it's through the life and sacrifice of Christ that we are set free to be on a direct line to eternal life. When I was a child, this idea of the circle of the year must have made a great impression on me. Because I have a very visual imagination, I, sat, I saw and in fact still see the year as a kind of wheel with each month and season and special day shows up on that circle. In fact, I'll confess that I'm often lurking somewhere just outside November. I don't know why I've <laughs> taken up that particular position. I have an almost physical feel for that, for where I am on the, on the wheel. It still amuses me that on my annual wheel, 
July and August stretch clear across the top. And December, January, February, March are just down here. It's all crowded in together. But I guess it's a kid's desire for a long summer <laughs> that puts the year uh, at that discrepancy. I've come to realize, however, that we must direct our lives onto a path that doesn't circle back around and around, but moves directly from the repetition of life to death to life to one that leads us from mortality and its endless sameness into the goal of new and unending life. At one time, the priests in the temple sacrificed over and over again as retribution for people's sins. But their offerings were only good for the moment and had to be repeated. There's a character in a play by Christopher Fry called Thor with Angels who hears for the first time the Christian message. And he says, that deed of death was done and done and always to be done again. But with Jesus, that endless round of payment is ended. We no longer need to fear the round of the year when every birth is followed by a death. We need no longer pay the priests of the temple to buy us a little sinless time. Now in this new line toward everlasting life, Jesus is the high priest and also the sacrifice, and we are the beneficiaries of that redemption. What we hear in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians today is the enthusiastic validation of the Christians he addresses. He praises them for their steadfastness and tells them how they exemplify all that he had hoped for them. And the major validation is his promise that they will be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul believes the Christians in Thessaloniki are ready for the end of times, are ready for the second coming, predicted in today's reading from Luke's Gospel. We are on the brink of new life. We are about to enter the season of Advent, the beginning of Jesus' human life, and therefore the beginning of our own journeys toward new life. Amen. <laughs>